0: Welcome to the 1505 Club. Today we're going to start a little midweek philosophy. For this segment, I thought I'd start with something that's unique to Gonstead. While there are a few different versions of the saying before Gonstead got a hold of it, it has now become part of his legacy that he said we should find the subluxation, accept it where we find it, adjust it, and leave it alone. This is in a philosophical nutshell the job description of the chiropractor. So let's break it down and look at each part independently. In 1997, As a first-year chiropractic student, I attended my first God says seminar. As every student knows, attending a seminar for the first time is a somewhat nerve-wracking experience because you have no idea what you're going to encounter. Is it going to be some kind of metaphysical weirdness that I'm expected to accept on blind faith, or is it going to be an evidence-based thing where we cannot acknowledge the existence of anything that hasn't been double-blind studied, or are we just going to move a bunch of joints, make a bunch of noise, and hope that it all works out for the best in the end? Well, I went to my first Gonset seminar, having experienced one Gonset adjustment, and I had never felt anything so powerful before in my life. I knew I wanted to know more, but I didn't really know what that would entail. In those days, when you went to the seminar for the first time, you were required to go to Jim Stoner's beginner's class first, no questions asked. After you had taken that class, you could then take the technique class. You had to take the technique class at least three times before you could go to Doug Cox's class and you had to attend at least seven seminars before you could sit in Alex Cox's class. Of course, from the moment you arrive at your first Gonset seminar, the race is on to beat all of your classmates and be the first one to sit in Alex's class so you can tell them all how awesome it is and how much they're missing out. I don't know why we do that, but we all do it, and you know that's how it was. But that very first time, we all knew we had to be in Dr. Stoner's class, so there was no competition, However, we felt like we were missing out from all of those other classes. Boy, were we wrong. Since we recently lost Dr. Stoner, I want to express that praise and gratitude that he deserves, and I want to make a point of emphasizing how critical his class was to the growth of the Gonstead group and what a phenomenal job he did of presenting the material in a way that made it unavoidably attractive and addictive. Dr. Stoner played a vital and crucial role in the growth and development of generations of Gonstead doctors, and we all owe him a huge debt of gratitude. The reason I bring up Dr. Stoner and his class is because the first part of that saying is to find the subluxation. In that first class, in my second semester of school, Dr. Stoner taught me what a subluxation was, how to find it, and how to quantify it on an X-ray. I didn't know it then, although I did highly suspect it. He had already taught me more about being a chiropractor than I would ever learn in school, and consequently, more than many chiropractors will ever learn in their entire career. After all, he wasn't just teaching it, he had lived it and practiced it for decades, and that fact came through in everything he said. I made a decision after that first class that I would retake his class at least once a year throughout my time in school and at least three years into practice. Coming from a sports background, I knew that the basics are everything. There's an old story about Vince Lombardi when he met with the Packers for the first practice after winning Super Bowl I, and the players couldn't imagine what else he had to teach them. He walked up to them and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. The point being that you can never become so good that you cannot gain something from a greater mastery of the basics. In fact, two years ago, when I was taking my diplomate test, I took Dr. Rick Elbert's x-ray line drawing class. I've been drawing lines on x-rays for 20 years, so it's not that I don't know how to do it, but I did it with the hope that I could learn just one new thing. Well, believe it or not, that's exactly what happened. Dr. Albert told me how I could get the best parallel in existence from the Palmer bookstore because it has two rubber rings per side instead of just one. There's always something you can learn. You just have to look for it. So what is this idea of finding the subluxation? I went to a school where we weren't even allowed to use the word subluxation, much less look for them. I've heard many chiropractors in the profession state that this is the easiest part and most chiropractors have it mastered. I disagree. I think the reason why Gonsa's statement is so powerful is because all four parts are actually very difficult to implement with precision and mastery. I've often told students that if anyone ever tells you that chiropractic is easy, they're either lying to you or they're doing it wrong. My ability to give a good adjustment has improved at a much faster pace than my ability to correctly find subluxations. I can tell you that whenever a seasoned doctor makes a mistake, it will almost never be the adjustment itself, but it'll be the application of that adjustment, which means they didn't properly find the subluxation. Gonstead himself said, chiropractic always works. When it does not appear to, question your application, but never question the principle. He was eloquently stating that when chiropractic doesn't work, it's because you're doing the wrong thing, dummy. So the question always comes, how do you find the subluxation? Palpation, scope, x ray. Is that all? No. You look at symptoms. You use your knowledge of biomechanics and neurology, something that should be continually growing throughout your career. You use your intuition and experience, something you don't have much of when you start out, but you can always borrow from other people until you do. In short, use everything you have at your disposal and get creative when necessary. Subluxations are elusive, and if you think they're easy to find, you're probably falling into the trap of adjusting a compensation. There's a tip from an old army manual that says if your advancement on the enemy is going better than planned, you're probably walking into a trap. Chasing down subluxations can be a lot like that. We could probably stay on this one subject all day, but we won't. Needless to say, this is one of the main reasons why we have guests on the podcast to help with gaining insight so we can all become better at finding subluxations. So let's move on to the second part accept it where you find it. If you're new to chiropractic, especially Gonstead chiropractic, then you would probably wonder why this part is even necessary. In many ways, this just speaks once again to how elusive subluxations can be. Even when you're sure you found it, you still aren't that sure. Also, in order to make the task at hand a bit easier, we tend to find that our brains gravitate towards certain handles or shortcuts, and this can lead us to make mistakes more readily and unconsciously. For example, A patient has pain that travels down their arm. Your training and your instincts tell you that it probably should be caused by a lower cervical or an upper thoracic vertebra. You evaluate the patient and all you can find is a T5 subluxation. Do you adjust it or not? Accept it where you find it. See how valuable that is? That's just one simple example, but I used it because I know a number of seasoned doctors that would tell you that they have corrected arm pain with a mid thoracic adjustment even though they have no idea how it worked. It's a good thing they chose to accept it where they found it. Now, this method only works so long as you actually go through the process of finding it and you aren't relying on just one method of assessment alone. Accepting it where you find it can be a difficult mental game to play. However, when you make this a habit in your early years, you will learn a lot from it that will make it easier to do this as time goes on. Honestly, I find it so much easier to accept it where I find it now than I ever did when I was first getting started. The third step is to correct it. Now this is one that I spent a lot of time contemplating in my early years. It didn't take me very long to figure out that creating a cavitation or simply moving the bone was not the same thing as a correction. The problem was that I didn't really know what a correction was, and I certainly wouldn't have recognized it even if I had stumbled on it by accident. So I began to think about it logically. As I often say, logic is the primary tool of philosophy, so chiropractic is only philosophical as long as it's logical. So when faced with a dilemma such as this, the proper move is to turn to logic. I reasoned that if adjustment could be too shallow, then it could also be too deep. If there's a proper line of correction, then there's also an improper line of correction. In fact, Aristotle said that there is one angle at which a man may stand, but many at which he will fall. This quote got me thinking that it's most logical that there are many angles at which an adjustment will fail to achieve its directive or purpose but there's only one angle at which it will be successful. I then posited in my mind that I would commit myself to doing everything within my power to become as skilled as possible at recognizing that proper angle and force necessary to create a perfect correction. I began to see people as locks and I had to determine the combination. It didn't take long before I started to see them as a bicycle lock. You know, the ones with the dials. I realized that some people were locks with only three numbers and others were locked with five, or seven, or more numbers. I quickly realized that one of the most difficult things is figuring out just how complex the patient sitting in front of you really is. It's very easy to fool yourself into thinking someone has a simple problem, only to later realize that they were actually extremely complex. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that it's really easy to take for granted our ability to actually correct the patient's problem. We should never confuse good intentions for actual accomplishment. The final part is the part that I think is quite unique to Gonstead chiropractic. Dr. Gonstead said that after you find it, accept it where you find it, and correct it, then you need to leave it alone. Not once during the entirety of my education did anyone ever tell me once, the patient is better, you should leave it alone. Much less did they tell me how to know when to leave it alone, or even know to, to know when the patient's better. These are things that I only heard at the Gonstead seminars, and my first introduction to these concepts was on that first day, in Dr. Stoner's class. While the idea of leaving it alone may be unique to gone state chiropractic, it's also essential. If you were to start talking to older docs, I can guarantee you that they can all tell you a story about a time when they adjusted too many times. If you've never experienced this, then you might wonder what happens if you adjust a patient too many times. In most cases, it's going to be a patient with a very particular problem. Maybe it's a particular neurological problem like Bell's palsy or even the shingles, or it could be a complicated case where they had severe trauma like a car accident with a pre-existing condition like scoliosis and their symptoms are unusual like hemiplegia or something like that. As you begin to make corrections, you notice that the patient is improving. At some point, the patient is improved enough that they are essentially well and all of their symptoms are completely gone. It's often at this point when you decide to give them one more for the road, as they say, because after all, what could go wrong? What you will find is that the one for the road will set them back, their symptoms might all return, and they will be much harder to fix the second time. There's a story from Mount Horeb, where there was a lady that was seeing her local chiropractor. I don't remember her exact symptoms offhand. She eventually went to see Dr. Gonstead when her local chiropractor couldn't fix it. He did his evaluation and began to work on her. Her improvement was slow at first, but Dr. Gonstead eventually got her to be 100%. Like always, he sent her home and told her that if it ever came back, to come back and see him. But don't let anyone else touch it. He actually told that to patients a lot. Well, they didn't see her for years, but then one day she showed up back at the clinic. He asked her what had happened, and she said she went to see her local chiropractor, and he laid her face up and adjusted it from both sides. Gonstead took a new x-ray and went back to work, but he was never able to get it right again after that. It was stories like this that led me to realize that with any adjustment, your potential for good is directly proportional to your potential for harm. In other words, an adjustment that can't possibly hurt anyone can't possibly help anyone either. And an adjustment that can do incredible good can also do incredible harm if it's applied incorrectly. It's only when we truly understand this concept that we can understand the importance of knowing when to quit and simply leave it alone. So let's go back to Dr. Stoner's basic class once again. As a student in school, I often heard science, but it always seemed random, directionless, and without purpose. We would escape from the school environment and go to hear philosophy lectures, but they always seemed emotional, idealistic, and completely out of touch with reality. At that first seminar, and especially in that first class, I encountered someone who could talk philosophy as well as anyone. He could talk science as well as anyone, but he could also talk about the art, and he could do it in a way where they were all congruent and they made sense because they were interdependent. My purpose in doing these short philosophy segments is to provide you with the same thing. To me, philosophy is more than just a motivational speech, although philosophy is motivating when it's done right. Philosophy, as D.D. Palmer defined it, is the why behind what we do. Several years ago, Simon Sinek wrote a book called It Starts With Why. In spite of its simplicity, this book was revolutionary because it got people to go back to the beginning and discover their why. Why do you go to your office? Why do you want to give to people? There's a why behind everything we do, and in chiropractic, philosophy is the why behind what we do. Dr. Gonstead's this concept is a philosophical construct based on scientific knowledge. All philosophical concepts are based in science. When we don't know the philosophy, we look to science for the answers, and this informs the philosophy. Philosophically speaking, most Gonstead doctors still talk about nerve pressure. I know the modern research that shows we influence neuroplastic changes in the brain by affecting proprioception, but that does not change the fact that we have all seen nerve pressure cause symptoms and we've just as rarely seen those symptoms go away when the nerve pressure is removed. I can't imagine the day will ever come when we do not speak of nerve pressure, and for the most part, that's our why. It's often difficult to explain the importance of philosophy, as there is invariably someone who asks, what are the consequences of ignoring philosophy altogether? Obviously, they are thinking that if the consequences aren't that severe, then what's the big deal? Well, the most important thing you will get from philosophy is congruency. Perhaps a better word for that is integrity. This word integrity originally comes from the old Roman army. When they were preparing for war, they would go through and call out each piece of their defenses and their weaponry. With each thing that was called out, they would all say in in unity, Integris. When everything had been called out and it was all verified, They would put their fist over their heart and call out one final integris. Integris means wholeness or completeness, and this is also the meaning of integrity. The interesting part about this story is that over time, as they conquered most of the known world, they became sloppy, and they began to take things for granted. As sloppiness set in, a piece of defense might be missing here or there. A person might forget one of their weapons, or they might simply forget to strap it all tight. Little by little, their integrity began to fade and this ultimately led to their defeat. The same thing tends to happen when we take our own integrity for granted. Now you might be wondering how philosophy helps to ensure your own congruency or integrity. Congruency and integrity are not the same thing, but philosophy creates congruency and congruency protects our integrity. The way that philosophy does this is by giving us a direction and a purpose. In Simon Sinek's own words, and I quote, "'When I first discovered this thing called the why, It came at a time in my life when I needed it. It wasn't an academic or intellectual pursuit. I had fallen out of love with my work and found myself in a very dark place. There was nothing wrong with the quality of my work or my job, per se. It was the enjoyment I had for that work that I'd lost. By all superficial measurements, I should have been happy. I made a good living. I worked with great clients. The problem was I didn't feel it. I was no longer fulfilled by my work and I needed to find a way to rekindle my passion. The discovery of why completely changed my view of the world, and discovering my own why restored my passion to a degree multiple times greater than any other time in my life. It was such a simple, powerful, and actionable idea that I shared it with my friends. That's what we do when we find something of value. We share it with the people we love. Inspired, my friends started making big life changes. In turn, they invited me to share this idea with their friends, the people they loved, and so the idea started to spread, End quote. If you're early on in your career, you may find it difficult to even imagine a time when you'll become burned out or lose interest. Believe it or not, the day will come when you will find it to be relatively easy to make adjustments and help patients. It's at this point that you will start to become bored and lose interest. Philosophy protects us against this because it gives us a why, and that why is the greatest insurance against boredom and burnout. That means we need to become philosophically sound early on in our careers, long before there's any risk of burnout or boredom. There's so much more that I could say on this topic, but I think we will leave that for another time. For today, we can simply think about those infamous words, find the subluxation, accept it where you find it, correct it, and leave it alone. Until next time.